Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. This morning we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, so the very last verse of the first chapter, and then we're going to go all the way through uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. So here the biblical author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17. When Jonah's been hurled into the tempestuous sea, and the Lord, it says, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Remarkable. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We trust its truthfulness. You cannot lie. You're not a deceiver. You are the truth and the life. We pray now that you yourself would come and you would meet us here in this assembly and under the preaching of your word, you would pour out your Holy Spirit and our hearts would be greatly comforted and encouraged about a God who can lift us up from the depths. Salvation belongs to you. Settle that in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. That salvation does belong to the Lord is the big message of this little book. And we're exploring last week, this week, Next couple weeks, what all that means. Salvation belongs to the Lord. A week ago, it was about our readiness to go wherever, whenever, and to whomever our sovereign Savior calls us with His Word, His message of both judgment and, Lord willing, mercy and grace for the lost. It was a call, in one sense, to see the sinfulness and the rebellion of God's prophet Jonah and then be what? Different. Different from Jonah. Jonah, you remember, had lost touch with grace. And because he had lost touch with grace, he proved calloused to the Lord. He proved calloused to the word of the Lord. He proved calloused 
to his prophetic responsibility in the world. He proved callous to the salvation, the need of his enemies, their greatest need. And he proved callous even to his own condition. Even to his own condition. And that's where we pick up today. Jonah has sinned. He's rebelled. He's been disobedient to the Lord. And he's now despairing of life itself. He's sinking to the depths of a raging sea with no prospect, but what would seem to be certain death. But salvation belongs to the Lord. So, when we think on this salvation, do we think on God's commitment and God's ability to rescue not just lost, perishing sinners, but His commitment and His ability to rescue the saved from our deepest sorrows and from our weightiest sins that drag us down like a millstone or an anchor to the very bottom of ourselves? Do we bear His preservative power and His mercy in mind? Do we rejoice more steadily through all the ups and downs of the Christian life that He who began a good work in us will not stop until He's brought that thing to completion at the day of Jesus Christ with many, many deliverances along the way. What sins are dragging you down this morning? What hardness of heart? What insensitivity to His Word? You come here this morning, are you angry? Jonah was angry. You bitter. Jonah was bitter. You sad. You despairing. Jonah was all those things. Because Jonah was off course from the Lord. He was out of touch with grace. Do you feel like you're sinking under sort of these battering waves into a life-strangling sea of justice on account of your sins? Have you, like Jonah, resigned yourself to the depths of spiritual futility? I'm never going to be able to get up again. Like Jonah, have you lost touch with the grace of God? If so, and as so, I just want you to be assured this morning that God above can get down to your depths, to our depths, and He can raise you up again. That's our passage. So let's come to it, picking up in chapter 1, verse 17, with God to the rescue. God to the rescue. And what a mighty lovely thing that you and I get to confess and share with other people that our God is a rescuing God. A just God, but also the God of all mercy, the God of all grace, as Jonah will come to say. He's no vain idol. He is instead the sovereign Savior of the world. He's not a God that steals away your life like false gods will do. He's the God who raises us from the dead. He's the God who rescues us from our deaths. He is the God who renews us day by day by day. He may demand our lives. He may command us to take up our cross and lay down our lives on those crosses, and He does do that. But even that, oddly enough, in the eyes of the world, is really the effect of His eternal life at work within us. If we're really raised from the dead, we will lay down our lives daily. But again, with Jonah, you remember this, the issue isn't that he doesn't know all of that. That he fails to apply what he knows both to himself and to everybody else around him. He's run away from serving the Lord in Nineveh. He's remained calloused and tight-lipped around all of those lost and perishing souls who were on the edge of eternal judgment. And he seemed to resign himself to the punishment of an unbeliever. He's numb to what you see later on in the New Testament, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he's numb to, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. Numb to that, all that Jonah really applies to himself is, but the wages of sin is death. So he's out of touch with grace. 
Which is not to say, we need to hear this, it's not to say that there are no consequences for our sins. There are. In fact, we need to be very careful here not to turn the story of Jonah into the story of Job. Nor that we make this about compassion for a depth of sorrow instead of a warning about the sinking and the killing effects of sin in our lives. It's kind of what we do today. In place of real talk about our sin, we prefer to eulogize about our sorrows. We make our hurts and our pains and our sadnesses, our root issues, our root problems, It's about all that's happened to us, all that's gone wrong for us, and very little about all that we have actually done wrong. We don't like talking about that. We don't like bringing our sins to light. And that's because A, we have an enemy who loves to keep us in the dark, who loves to isolate us in our sins just so that he can prey upon us and press upon us, a guilt from which we cannot get out from under. And B, we have lost touch with grace. Both the compassion of grace, but also the power of grace. Grace is more, we need to hear, than that through which God justifies sinners. It is also the power through which God sanctifies the saved. Raises us up again. So let's make no mistake about it. Jonah's sinking is not first a sinking in sorrow, it is a sinking in sin. It's an historical event depicting for us those words of the Puritan John Owen when he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a call to make war against sin and temptation lest being at peace with sin and temptation, it drags you down under a raging sea into the belly of Sheol. And so friends, if that's you this morning, you need to hear that running against God, running against God is a sure way to lose your soul. That is not one you can win. But to everyone except us readers, there is an unexpected surprise in Jonah's story, right? The the, the mariners are definitely thinking it is over for Jonah. Jonah has died. It's over. And I can't imagine that as he sinks, Jonah's thinking much differently. (laughs) I'm I'm going to die for my sin, which is why I brought up Job. What surprises us about Job's story is that he's sinking in sorrow, not because of his sin, but because he's righteous, and God waits so very long To rescue him. That's not this. The surprise in Jonah's story is that he's sinking not because he's righteous necessarily, but because of his sin, because of his disobedience. And yet, instead of waiting so long to rescue him, what does God do? Well, in his case, God comes rather swiftly to rescue him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes to us from His hand, at His time, at His will, in His grace, often when we least expect it. There's a little bit of the parable of the prodigal son in the story of Jonah. If you're unfamiliar with that one, you can go read Luke 15 a little bit later on this afternoon. But we find a God at the ready to rescue and to receive those that you and I might have been fine leaving to the raging sea. Thank the Lord for that, because we all deserve that raging sea without a divine rescue. And again, that's probably Jonah's conviction here, as he's being hurled into this swirling abyss, only to sink, sink, sink down to its bottom. And as he's sinking, and as he gets there, just as soon as he kind of hits the bottom, that's precisely when Nemo, the godsend, shows up, verse 17. The Lord appointed, don't miss the language there, the Lord appointed a great fish 
to swallow up Jonah. And it does this. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from there, the belly of the fish, Jonah's going to pray. (laughs) Now, of course, everybody always gets caught up on the fish. And in doing so, they risk losing the actual point in the verse there. And trust me, you watch enough IG reels of whales coming to the surface to perform their magic trick of making paddle boarders vanish in their mouth. Yeah, there's no reason to doubt the veracity of what we've just read here in Jonah. We have no idea what sort of giants live out there in that sea. It's crazy time, okay? Now, the point, though, is the Lord's appointment. The Lord's appointment is to help us see the truth that even more meticulously now, God is sovereign. It's that our Lord is the Lord of all. He's not just the Lord of the sea in general. He's the Lord of all the creatures in the sea. You know how many millions and billions and billions of creatures are in the sea? And here's one of them. And he appoints it to do something, and it does it. So he's made them as they are, he owns them as they are, and this is where Jonah really needs to listen up, and all the world's Jonahs need to listen up and learn from this fish. This fish does as its sovereign commands. It lives, and it moves, and it acts at its king's bidding. So what Jonah has failed to do, the sea has done. The mariners have been moved to do. And now this great fish has also done. Are we picking up what the Lord is putting down? Now, you and I are distinct from all other creatures in that we are moral creatures who make decisions now, this side of the fall, for better and for worse. But it really only raises the stakes and intensifies the responsibility we have to lay our lives gladly at the feet of our God and our Savior. It's only sin that persuades us otherwise not to do that. And it's only grace that holds us in step with the Lord's heart and the Lord's mind and the Lord's word and the Lord's will as we were made and are now redeemed to be. But the text is clear then. In this, walking in step with the Lord by virtue of the grace of God, in this, we often have to be rescued from ourselves. And that rescue is often terrifying. We may look at the cross, for example, and you and I see life. But is that what the lost see while they're still lost? Do they not see the end of their lives as they want to live their lives? And even as a Christian, we may look at a church and see life. But is that what a prodigal sees? Is that what the church wounded soul immediately and obviously sees? How do you This morning, perceive, how do you perceive correction, reproof, or rebuke of a brother or sister over some sin that you have committed? Do we perceive those things as the psalmist? Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness, he says. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head, let my head not refuse it. What about candid conversations or any notion of confiding in another about your sins. At first glance, does that seem like divine rescue to you? Because I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Nemo may not at first glance strike Jonah as the divine instrument of His salvation. As if the prospect of death at sea was not terrifying enough, 
Again, if you've ever seen the movie The Perfect Storm and Mark Wahlberg just kind of like floating out in the dark abyss by himself, I'm like, that is the worst ever. Okay, sorry. Always got to throw that in there. As if the prospect itself of the death at sea wasn't terrifying enough. Or the pressure and pull of the sea was only slightly awful or suffocation by salt water wasn't frightful enough. Great. Here comes what might as well be Jaws to swallow me whole. Okay? So, I don't think Jonah's like, sweet deliverance. He's like, crud. This can't be life. It may be the most Stephen King end of a life a person can conceive, but it can't be the life support. It can't be the sanctuary. It cannot be the rescue of God. And that just shows you what we know, which is very little. It shows you how deeply we need God's willingness to show us otherwise. Listen, things that we think may finish us off completely, Maybe God's means of resurrection, rescue, revival, and resetting of your life. When you're drowning in sin, don't let it close your eyes or color your perception of the great fishes that God is like to send your way. Embrace accountability. Count candidness a kindness. Don't refuse rebuke. Get up, find a healthy church, and this is terrifying, commit there. Go to the cross, go to Christ, and say, here I am, help me, take me, own me, send me. All those things right there, that's God. That's God, our sovereign Savior, to the rescue. And so we come to this prayer of Jonah then, starting in verse 2. We call it maybe a psalm of the rescued. Where you have a few things, four to be exact, that sinking saints most definitely need to see. One, if you look in verse 3, is the sovereignty of God. Not just over our rescue. We like that, we're fine with that. But not just over our rescue, but over our sinking It is a kindness of God that He will not let us go on in our sin without causing us to sink in it. It's only those who hate us who let us go on in our sin as if we are secure on solid ground. As if we're safe. If you're caught in a riptide, dragging you out the sea, and from your vantage point, because you're turned towards the shore, and you can't see the waves coming, you don't know it, but another, another person is standing on shore, and they know there's a problem. You're about to get caught in this thing and dragged out. And they just sort of wave at you and smile. As you're swept away to your death, that person has not loved you. It's the one who urgently alerts you and then convinces you of your danger in order to rescue you that loves you. And in God's case, I think this is the thing that surprises us the most, in God's case, He not only presides over the rescue, but He presides also over the endangerment. Do you hear verse 3? For you, Jonah says, cast me into the deep. Who cast him into the deep? I thought it was the mariners. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. You gave me the sense of being outside your ark. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. And So we need to hear this now. The way we try to comfort Sinning and sorrowing souls today is by removing God's sovereign activity from it. Oh, He definitely feels for you in it. He's weeping with you in it. But He in no way has anything to do with it. 
And for our rescue in truth, Jonah here could not disagree more with that. He cannot fathom, Jonah cannot fathom the need we apparently feel today to disassociate the deaths that we face from the sovereign involvement of God. When we do that, I mean, it seems like we're doing the comforting thing. But what we're really doing is just exalting another sovereign in his place, like tragedy and hopelessness. And where is the comfort in that? True comfort comes by the truth. And the truth is, there is not a situation, however breaking or bleak, where God is not in control, where God is not the main actor in it. Now, again, we don't like that. Because sometimes, He casts us down and brings about our deaths in dreadful ways. But even that only exposes how little we estimate, how little we value, how little we prize His ultimate rescue beyond this veil of tears. But at any rate, you remove His sovereignty in your sinking, you remove Him. He is the sovereign. And that sovereign is the Savior. Okay? And right there is all your hope and you're being pulled down to the bottom. Here's what I mean. If, as Jonah is cast from the ship, as he hits the surface of that stormy sea and is plunged beneath it, And as he's battered and pulled down by every appointed wave and billow, as he's engulfed by this flood of justice, and as his distress reaches the despair of Sheol, and as the darkness increasingly envelops him as he goes down, and the weeds entangle him as he passes down all the way to the roots of the mountains, and as the sandbars present as a casket that are closing over him forever, as his life is fainting away, all things that you'll find, by the way, in verses 2 through 7, if in all of that God abides Lord of all, as Jonah here affirms, we're taught something extremely vital both for living and for dying, and it's this, there is no depth from which God above cannot deliver us. There is no sin so grave, there is no consequence so crushing, there is no situation so bleak, there is no soul so sin-logged and weighed down, not even yours or mine, but our sovereign of and over the storm is able to rescue and restore us to life and to good use again. The one who casts us into the sea is able to fish us out of the sea again. And we should praise Him for both. The Lord disciplines, I think Hebrews, the Lord disciplines and delivers those whom He loves. Jonah. So there's God's sovereignty in our sinking. But with it, there's God's salvation in our sinking. And as we've already sat on this a good bit, I'm really just wanting to reinforce it at this point. Jonah has sinned. Even as a believer, a minister of the truth, a prophet of God, that's enough to not be rescued. We can't forget that. It's enough to not be rescued. And Jonah gets it. When, verse 6, we've sinned our way into the pit, let the free and undeserved mercy we see here in our passage break us and wholeheartedly win our hearts away from sin and back to the Lord. 
Down, 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 Jonah goes. And then you see verse 6, yet, yet, you, O Lord my God, brought up my life from the pit. The same for you and me. Jonah could only bring himself down. Jonah could only bring himself down. God alone was able to bring Jonah up again. Now, for what it's worth, even as he's sinking, it seems that Jonah believes that he's going to be with the Lord even in his death. Seems so. You see that into verse 4. I don't think he thinks he's lost to God forever, but I do think he thinks he's a lost cause at present. He holds out a hope for the future, it seems, that he does not seem to hold out in the moment. But God is a rescuer of the saved. Okay? So dear ones, this great salvation, we need to hear this. Sometimes we get sort of trapped in this mode of thinking. This great salvation is not just for heaven, but also for all the ups and downs of holiness on our way to heaven. The one who saved us from the hell that our sins deserve is no less interested in saving us at just the right time from the disciplines our sins receive and the pits that we carve out for ourselves. He's your Savior today in your sinning. He is your Savior. Right? Adam ruined the world. All the awfulness that you see in our world today, Adam did that. That goes back to him. That was on his record. It's not anymore. Adam ruined the world. Abraham was polygamous. Jacob was a deceiver, a liar. Moses murdered a guy. David raped a woman and then murdered her husband. Vice versa. Solomon whored with all the world. Isaiah, in some sense, had a dirty mouth. Peter denied Jesus. Paul terrorized the church. And Jonah, the prophet of God, told the Word of God and the God of the Word, No, I hate those sinners. And yet, God, being richer in mercy than we are poor with sin, rescued and restored each and every one of those lives. How many pit stories could you and I retell to the glory of the grace of God? Or in keeping with the theme and trajectory of Jonah, how many pit stories do you and I retell to the lost on our way to presenting the gospel to them. Is there a sin? Is there a sin? A series of sins? A besetting sin? In your mind you think, there is no way that I can come back up from that. Let Jonah's story change your mind. In your sinking, your Savior is Savior still. He's your justifier, praise God. But He's no less your sanctifier, praise God. Which brings me to this, prayer. I don't know where you'd put it, but I think I'd put Jonah's ark slash fish encounter at the end of verse 6. Somewhere around there. But regardless... Let's not forget that this entire psalm is a prayer (laughs) 
of thanksgiving from inside the belly of a fish. Okay? So, amazing what God ordains as sanctuaries for His people. Right? A garden, Eden, we're like, oh yeah, that's a sanctuary. Right? You go to the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, the guy's wife is viewed as a sanctuary for him. Right? You think of the ark. The ark is a sanctuary. You think of uh, the lion's den. That thing gets sanctified for Daniel. Do you think of a Jewish man nailed to a cross? God in the flesh? Or how about here? How about the belly of a great fish as a sanctuary of God for His people? Often when we think about God's sanctuaries in our sinking, we think getting away to Potter's Place by ourselves. We don't think about being stuck between the esophageal and intestinal tracts of a sea beast in the deep dark heart of a water underworld, but that's how God often recenters us on Himself instead of self. All right, would that it weren't this way, but we often have to face distress for our sins before we will seek God's face and grace about our sins. And that's what Jonah does. You see that in verses 1 and 2, and then again in verse 7. He who had no heart to pray for his enemies on dry land, nor any mind to pray for himself or the mariners in the storm at sea on a ship, now prays in the stormy sea from the belly of a great fish. We can be hard nuts to crack, can't we? But it seems the watery grave in three days in that belly have finally distressed and or softened the prophet's heart to the point of, I called out, I cried out to the Lord. My prayer came to you. Do you ever feel like you can't pray when you're in the depths of your sin? Like there's a place so low spiritually, it's no use. Or more basically, are we even inclined in that prayerful direction in general? Like when we're low in our sin, are we aware that we're low in our sin? Or are we just kind of content to be there? Are we in a condition like Jonah where nothing but the belly of a fish will suffice for calling out to God, please help, rescue me? I hope not, and we can pray not. Right? We should pray that we would be super soft and highly sensitive and hyperactive against the slightest temptation to sin and those slippery places that might cause our feet to slide down and further down. God, help us not to need a fish like this in order to pray at all. But if we do, see, it's no inhibitor to being heard and then answered by the Lord. There's no place we cannot converse with God. If you look at verse 7, you find a most prayer-spurring claim. From the belly of the fish... Jonah's prayer came into the Lord's holy temple and to the Lord. And in verse 2, it's added, you heard me. You heard my voice. And the Lord answered me. And that me is a mostly dead rebel prophet from inside the sanctuary of an animal's digestive system. So, don't doubt the reach. Don't doubt the reach either of true prayer or divine grace in response. The Lord, listen, the Lord here cannot be higher. He's in His temple. 
The Lord cannot be higher, and Jonah can hardly be lower. But our loving Lord above has bottoms and depths to which no sin now can drag us. However weighed down by sin, our God can raise us up again. So just cry out to Him. Cry out to Him from wherever. It reaches Him. That's what you're seeing in the passage. It reaches Him, and He is inclined to reach out, to send an ark, to rescue and reset our lives. And that brings us to God's service in our steadying. He's not sinking anymore. He's steadied, sort of, belly of a fish. It brings us to that and really towards our final point. Being rescued in this way, no longer sinking, steadied, Jonah makes the great confession of the entire book into verse 9. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's still from inside the belly of the fish. That's not after he's been vomited out on dry land. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And in doing so, he makes the case. Money, for instance, can do a lot of things. But it cannot save or rescue you from your sins. And neither can work or play or power or claim or smarts or skills or thrills or spouses, or children, or achievement, or fitness, or food, or politics, or sports, or self, or anything we make in vain into an idol or counterfeit God. The great test of true deity is Can it, can he, can she, can they, can I save me from my sins? If not, pay no regard to it as something worth the worship of your heart or the corresponding service of your life. Because if you do, all you'll do is forsake your hope of steadfast love. Forsake your hope in God. What I love about the Bible is about from one verse to another, it really presses upon us the most important questions that we could ever ask as human beings. Like this. What do we need most in life and death? That's a good question, right? Jonah's answer here is, The thing you need most in life and death is God's steadfast love. You need His covenantal mercy and the hope that comes with that. You need to be in relationship with Him. Jonah is rescued here because by grace he is in covenant with God. He's been united by faith to the only true and living Savior and therefore he has hope. He has hope in life that God is going to preserve him and he has hope in death that God is going to glorify him in his presence. You look elsewhere, anywhere else, for that you're only asking for none of the above. Now it raises the question, What do you and I make of God's rescues? Are we abusers of grace? Or are we good users of grace? The Apostle Paul once said, the grace of God was not in vain toward him, but that on the contrary, he went on to outwork all of the other apostles Peter and John and James and all those guys, by that same grace. It was not Him, He says, but grace that was operative in me to make me what I am. This mighty force for the kingdom of Christ. 
So dear ones, let's not let grace lay within us as if dormant, as if inoperative. Let's go beyond Jonah for sure, but let's at least begin as he does. He experiences this surprising grace of God, and he turns that experience of the surprising grace of God into thanksgiving and what seems like a repentant promise, I will now be a living sacrifice to the glory of my God. I will go and I will do as my saving sovereign has bid me to do in the world. That's what he says in verse 9. And so out of the psalm, we come to verse 10. And this is the reset of the rescued. As soon as Jonah gets right there, it says, the Lord spoke to the fish. This had to be awful, right? I'm just thinking of I'm Jonah. Put yourself in his place. Okay. He speaks to the fish and it vomits Jonah out. Not into the sea. but upon solid ground, dry land. It's a new start. It's life wrangled from the jaws of death. It's God's ark of grace giving Jonah opportunity to make good on the repentant promise that Jonah has made. Will Jonah prove now not to be out of touch with grace, but in touch with it? Would the prophet be gladly obedient to the word of God? Would he show a heart with more of Christ formed within it? Would Jonah put off his sins and put on, adorn this salvation in his life? Would he be captive to heavenly love? Paul again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, said this for all of us here. The love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we've concluded something. And what is that? Quote, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all. That those who live, in Him, by Him, might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was what? Raised. Has Jonah concluded that, as Paul did? Have you concluded that? Have I concluded that? Every day. Every day. Are we resetting our lives around the dying purpose of our risen Lord? Did you know that this is the one place where Jesus likens himself to Jonah? It's in Matthew 12, verse 40. If you want again something to read this afternoon. In that passage, Jesus says that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so he, Jesus, would be in the heart of the earth. Three days, three nights. Jesus would not almost die. He would die. And the death he died, he didn't deserve. He had no sin. And yet, he was neither rescued nor spared a single drop of the wrath of God as he died, not again for his own sins, but for ours. That they might be cast into the sea, never to be brought up again. Jesus died for our sins. And then he was buried. And three days later, God raised him up from the dead. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Christ is the ark for all God's people. Christ is the ark for all who repent of their sins and believe in the crucified and risen Christ. 
Jesus came into the world to be swallowed up by justice against our sins, that we might be swallowed up by Jesus and His grace and His salvation. A friend, if you came in here lost this morning, pay no more regard to vain idols that cannot save you from your sins. Only Jesus can do that. And it's all our prayer that you will turn from your sins right now and that you'll place your hope, your faith, your trust in Jesus. Don't wait to do that. Do it now. But after that's been done, what then, beloved? You've been raised with Christ and will be raised by Christ. By His power, one grave, that spiritual one has already spit you out, praise God. And so the last grave will also spit you out. But what about the in-between? What about the now? What about life? Not just life from death, but what about life from the depths of our sin? From day to day. What about God's resets in your life? Right? Prayers and thanks and vows are behind Jonah, Nineveh right now, and the Word of God, the call of God on his life is in front of Jonah. What will Jonah do? Will he make the most of this rescuing grace of God? Or will he prove to be disconnected, out of touch with that grace again? And as we go through it in the coming weeks, what will you and I adopt as we walk through it? I hope, I hope it's that you and I will pray that his rescuing grace would not be in vain toward us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the hope that we have in you, for your steadfast love towards us, that you neither will leave us nor forsake us. You may discipline us because you love us, but you always stand ready to deliver us again. So we praise you. You are the Savior. Salvation belongs to you. May our hearts be refreshed in that reality. And may you get so much glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.